Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk with Dahlia Lithwick about some of the heroes of the Trump years, the women lawyers who fought him in court on all the big issues. Her new book is Lady Justice. But first, nurses have been on strike or threatening to strike all over the place. Bryce Covert will report in a minute. The largest private sector nurses strike in American history took place recently in Minnesota. 15,000 nurses walked off the job for three days in the Twin Cities and the Twin Ports. For comment and analysis, we turn to Bryce Covert. She's an award-winning journalist who reports on the economic issues that affect workers and families. Her work appears in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and New York Magazine, and she's a contributing writer at The Nation. We reached her today at home in Brooklyn. Bryce Covert, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Your report for The Nation on the massive Minnesota nurses strike starts on the picket line in Duluth, outside St. Luke's Hospital at 6.30 in the morning. What did you learn about that picket line? Well, it was a lively picket line. From uh, what I was told, there were kids, there were babies, there was a pug, there was a goat. (laughs) Um, lots of folks showed up, everyone on the shit, on the unit that I, of the nurse I spoke to, Emily Niskern, she said everybody showed up and joined in on the strike that day. And lots of other unions came as well. Teachers, other retired nurses, uh, firefighters, everybody in the community was sort of coming out and supporting, bringing them food. You know, she and the other nurses I spoke to who went on strike as part of this really historic strike in September made it clear that, you know, a picket line can be sort of lively and fun to some extent, but it's not celebratory. They didn't want to be there. They would rather have been inside the hospital serving their patients and taking good care of them. But they all really feel pushed past their breaking point and felt that it was really important to make a statement. So... That's what they were doing in early September. The nurse who you referred to, Emily Niskern, told you in a very eloquent sentence why they were striking. How did she put it? Yeah, she said, you strike so you don't quit. She's a single parent. She got choked up when she was telling me about the financial hit that she was expecting to take. She couldn't buy her teenage daughter new shoes at the start of the school year because she was going to be losing that income. Um, But she just felt so strongly about the need to strike because she felt that she was not able to do her best work and give her best care under current conditions at her hospital. She told me a story that I just have to share because it was so harrowing and moving to me. She said, the worst shift I've ever worked as a, a nurse was in August She works on labor and delivery and with mothers and infants. And she was a charge nurse and she had to call up women who were scheduled to be induced and have their labor started at their doctor's orders and tell them, we don't have enough staff. You can't come in. Mm. If you're high risk or something seems like it's going wrong, you can come in, but all we can do is put you in a room and monitor you. We won't be able to start your delivery. And um, as someone who had her labor induced, uh, that really struck a chord. And it just is to show the issue that all of these nurses 
are protesting and many, many thousands of nurses have been protesting in the pandemic, which is, it's all about staffing levels. It's all about feeling like they don't have the staff and the resources to do the jobs well that they're supposed to be doing. And striking nurses in Minnesota and lots of other places have one genuinely radical demand beyond adequate staffing. They're asking for veto power over management staffing decisions. And that one drives management crazy. Yeah, management and a lot of these hospitals have been pushing back on bargaining over ratios. There was another strike that was about to happen in Michigan and then was called off because they were able to come to an agreement. Management was refusing at the University of Michigan hospital to bargain at all over staffing levels or staffing ratios, saying that they didn't have to. So that's the kind of pushback they've gotten. And, you know, what nurses are saying is, this is the most important part of our work and our jobs. This is at the core of whether we can do our job. We need a say. Hospitals are having a hard time staffing, and the pandemic has certain present, certainly presented a lot of issues. Uh, but what they're saying is, you know, things have gotten a little bit better than the early pandemic, and these emergency measures that were put in place, these low staffing levels, have not improved. It's time to improve them. The big picture here is that nurses' strikes can be effective for the simple reason that their work can't be outsourced to China or Mexico or South Carolina. Uh, but nurses' strikes are emotionally intense events because, I mean, as you've suggested, striking nurses are not taking care of their patients. That's hard on the patients, but it's also hard on the nurses. It absolutely is. And every time I've talked to a nurse who either was considering going on strike or was on strike, they said they did. that's not what they wanted to be doing. They wanted to be inside taking care of their patients. Most of them have really deep relationships with the community and the patients they care for. Um, you know, hospitals will bring in replacements during strikes sometimes, but those people don't necessarily know the patient population, know what's going on with the patients inside. It's, it's somewhat harrowing for them. They do not want to leave the bedside, but they have been so pushed past the limit in the pandemic that so much has been demanded of them and very little, little given in return that they are en masse taking these actions. It's been all across the country, strike actions, protests, unionization votes. You know, nurses are mobilized right now. I think they see both the that everyone knows their value in the after the pandemic. We all got to see the work they do and how important it is. But that hasn't then been followed up with the treatment that they deserve. St. Luke's Duluth is a nonprofit and has been since it was founded in 1881, I learned from their website. But it is a private sector hospital. That means it's not operated by the city or the county. It's a nonprofit, yet it seems to be acting according to the dictates of profit. Yeah, and I think that's true for a lot of hospitals right now. The University of Michigan nurses I talked to as well said the same of their hospital, that it's also technically a nonprofit, but that about a decade ago, it changed its name and its practices to look more like the corporate hospitals that it competes with. You know, they're benchmarking against each other and they are, feel a lot of pressure to cut down on costs to increase their budgets, even if they're a nonprofit. Healthcare, as we all know, healthcare in America is expensive, but they are so focused, I think, on profit over patients in basically any kind of hospital you're going into. 
And they see nurses, unfortunately, as a cost, even though there is plenty of evidence and plenty of research that adding more nurses and investing in the work that they do saves you lots of money on the other end. You have fewer deaths, you have fewer people returning to the hospital after they've been there. Well, management responds to nursing strikes by hiring something called travel nurses. I've heard that travel nurses make a lot of money. Please explain how this works. Travel nurses have become really big in the pandemic and basically hospitals, when they haven't had enough staff on hand among their own staff, have hired out from basically anywhere nurses that will come to them and fill in spots and they pay a really high premium. And to some extent, it makes sense. You know, you're asking someone to come into a potential crisis situation far from home um, and step in and do the work. I think what's hard for the nurses who are already on staff is they're doing the same work alongside these travel nurses and making a fraction of of the pay that the travel nurses are getting. And they're saying, look, it's not that I don't think they deserve to have high pay, but don't I deserve more recognition for the work I'm here doing and have been doing before. Um, So there is a lot of pushback right now among nurses to say, look, you know, let's rely less on expensive travel nurses and invest in the nurses you've got. The Minnesota nurses strike, just to repeat, the largest private sector nursing strike in American history, ended September 15th as planned after three days. Uh, That's more than two weeks ago. Has there been any progress reported in the negotiations? Do you know? So last I had heard, there had not been movement from management, although talks had resumed the week after the strike. So I don't know that anything has actually come out of that one yet. I think we'll have to see and it's possible things are going on behind the scenes. So we don't know uh, anything about a settlement in Minnesota. We do know what happened in Michigan, where 96% of nurses voted to authorize the strike. That was the one that, as you said, was settled without a strike. What can you tell us about the new contract that nurses won in Michigan? You know, it's interesting. I think that we see a lot of movement with the strike authorization vote, even without an actual strike. So Before the agreement was reached, the hospital got back to me with a comment and said that what it had offered at that time was a 6% raise in the first year and 5% to the next three, and what it called expanded staffing guidelines. I don't know what that is, but we already knew that they were refusing at the time to bargain over staffing ratios. In the agreement that they eventually came to after the strike authorization vote, there are enforceable nurse to patient ratios. We don't know exactly what they are because they vary by unit, but the university could face fines if it doesn't comply with them. And also much bigger wage increases. There's a seven and a half percent raise this year, a six percent raise next year and five percent the year after. So I think you really see in that the effects that the nurses had by, you know, coming together and voting overwhelmingly to authorize a strike. They also got an end to mandatory overtime, something that came up a lot, which is for those unfamiliar, I was not management forcing them to work overtime hours because they were short staffed, um, which can be really dangerous if they're working longer than they feel their bodies are ready to do, as well as a $5,000 bonus upon ratification and a $2,000 retention bonus. Uh, So we talked mostly here about Minnesota and Michigan Lots of other stories of nursing strikes in Los Angeles where where we record this show. There have been a lot of action by nursing unions 
1,400 registered nurses at USC hospitals struck for two days in July. Also in LA, 1,000 nurses held a one-day strike at Kaiser hospitals in June. Inadequate staffing was the issue. 2,000 healthcare workers held a three-day strike in May at Cedars-Sinai. This was not registered nurses. This was certified nursing assistants, surgical technicians, transporters, and other hospital workers. They have many of the same issues as the registered nurses. They've been suffering burnout from understaffing, and they, they were worried a lot about health hazards during the pandemic. And then one of the biggest 7,000 nurses in June authorized the strike at four hospitals run by LA County, but it was one of those where the strike was called off at the last minute because the uh, county agreed to cut back on mandatory overtime. Most of these are led by National Nurses United, the largest nursing union. A couple of them in LA were led by the SEIU. Uh, let's talk a little about the nursing unions. I know National Nurses United was a big force in the Bernie campaigns of both 2016 and 2020, arguing for uh, Medicare for all. Yeah, National Nurses United has been behind a lot of these strikes. They were behind the big strike in Minnesota. They represented all of those 15,000 nurses who went on the three-day strike. Um, and they are an interesting union. You know, they obviously are pushing for what nurses want on the ground, you know, better staffing, better treatment and pay. But they also really push for larger scale changes. Like you said, the big one, I think, is Medicare for all. They are all in on Medicare for all. And, you know, the nurses I spoke to connect their issues back to that. This is a healthcare system that's not working for a lot of people. It's very expensive. If we had a better working system, there would be less pressure on hospitals to constantly be cutting nurses ranks and maybe a little bit more room to pay them better and treat them better. So I think it's an interesting union in that it takes a, a little bit of a broader lens on the issues facing its membership. So it's the real underlying problem here that there are not enough nurses in the United States. That's what some people say. I, I would push back a bit. You know, I think that nurses, a lot of them would say that it's not actually that we have a nursing shortage. And there are a steady number of people coming out and getting their nursing certifications every year, that number actually continues to increase and has not actually decreased. What happens is that nurses just refuse to work under these conditions. Certainly in the pandemic, like you said, we saw many people just leave the field. It was such an extreme workload mentally, physically, um, emotionally, that a lot of people just said, I can't do this anymore. But that's been going on for some time. Nurses have been burned out for a long, long time. So if we don't treat them better and keep them in their jobs, then that's what's creating the shortage. They are basically sort of taking on themselves, trying to fix the system so that they can give better care. A lot of what they would like to see is to have this legislated, to have staffing ratios enshrined in law so that they don't have to go on strike just to have enough people, you know, bodies in the room to take care of the patients who show up. California has staffing ratios. There's been debates in other states over it as well, but the hospital association and those lobbies really push back very hard and have a lot of money so it doesn't move forward as much. But if we did that, then nurses wouldn't have to take it upon themselves to go on strike and they could just focus on doing the job that they were trained to do. 
Bryce Covert. You can read her report on nursing strikes at thenation.com. Starts with that quote, you strike so you don't have to quit. Bryce, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much. It was great. It's time to talk again about the Trump years, but this time we want to talk not about the villains, but about some of the heroes, especially the women lawyers who fought him on the big issues. For that, we turn to Dahlia Lithwick. She's senior legal correspondent at Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. Her new book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. It's already a bestseller. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first things first, before Trump, before RBG, before Hillary, there was Pauli Murray. You call her a hero who wasn't a hero. Why do you open your book on women lawyers in the Trump years with Pauli Murray? It's a great question. It's a question I wanted you to ask. And the, you know, the short answer is because I think Polly Murray is the constitutional hero we all should have been talking about and fetting and remembering and thinking about. And Polly Murray is almost uh, totally forgotten to history, constitutional legal history. I never learned anything about Polly Murray in law school. And so the book starts with a little bit of a meditation, not just on why it is that lawyer who believed that they were a man trapped in a woman's body that was black, descended from slaves on one side and slave owners on the other, uh, that had every door closed possible, and yet somehow managed to write what became the kind of nut of the Brown v. Board petition before the Supreme Court that Thurgood Marshall won, wrote what became the paper that would become the cornerstone of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work on using the 14th Amendment uh, to get gender equality. All of this happened because of Pauli Murray and more. And yet history has more or less erased Pauli Murray. And so one of the things I wanted to think about in the introduction to this book is both a culture that is so desperate for heroes, right? We wait and we say, Bob Mueller is going to save us. And then we say, Merrick Garland's going to save us. And then we say, you know, RBG is going to come back from the grave and save us. But these heroes are everywhere. And some of them get famous and some of them don't. And some of them get mugs and tote bags and t-shirts and some of them don't. But the important thing is not the waiting around for the hero, it's lifting up and helping the heroes that are all around us, whether they get famous or not. The beginning of the Trump years, we start with Sally Yates, the acting attorney general of the United States, remaining in office until Trump could get his own attorney general confirmed by the Senate. A week after his inauguration, she ended up being the first person in the government to say no to Trump and the first person to get fired for it. What did she say no to? Sally Yates was, as you said, the acting attorney general, a holdover from the Obama administration. It's very common to keep someone on uh, in these acting positions until you can confirm their replacement. 
Um, but Sally Yates is also an institutionalist, was not by any metric a, a wild bomb thrower in the Obama administration in the Justice Department. I think thought she'd just be cooling her heels for a couple of weeks and then got slapped with the travel ban, with the Muslim ban. It wasn't vetted by her office. She didn't know it was coming. Nobody sought her opinion. It was simply announced and she found out the way the rest of us did on her iPhone uh, in her car. And faced with the prospect of sending her DOJ lawyers out to defend it in courts, having workshopped it really meticulously with her staff, Sally Yates just said, no, I cannot defend this. I think it's rooted in anti-Muslim animus in violation of the First Amendment. I think it violates the due process clause and essentially just made the decision that she worked for the people and the Justice Department and not for Donald Trump. And as you noted, she was summarily uh, and unceremoniously fired. One of the reasons the story is so important to me is because as you noted, she was one of the first people who said, I will not follow unlawful policies. I will not help enact them. But in a lot of important ways, she was also one of the last people. There were so few people in the Trump administration willing to courageously stand up and say, I will not do family separation. I will not rescind DACA. I will not go after you know trans uh, uh, service members because that is unconstitutional and permissible. So a lot of people got fired. And a lot of people didn't get fired, just kept doing what they were doing. And a lot of people after wrote tell-all books and made a lot of money for it. To me, Sally Yates is a hero, not just because of what she did, but because she modeled a thing that too few people did in her wake. And the next chapter of Trump's Muslim travel ban was that amazing weekend at the airports when lawyers and thousands of demonstrators swarmed the airports, the lawyers providing emergency legal services to travelers arriving from Muslim countries who were subject to the executive order that Trump had issued. You say we can thank Becca Heller for that. I had never heard of Becca Heller. This is why I wrote the book, because I some of the names in this book, everyone will go, oh, yeah, yeah, Sally Yates, I love her. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, Robbie Kaplan, I love her. But a lot of the people in this book maybe aren't household names, and Becca's one of them. She was one of the lawyers she had just really, she was extremely young, had founded IRAP, which is a refugee project. And she was anticipating the travel ban, was mobilizing lawyers, volunteer lawyers around the country to prepare for the eventuality that in fact occurred, which is that a whole bunch of refugees were going to get on planes with lawful permission to enter the country. And when the plane took off, they were entitled to enter the United States by law. But when the plane landed, the travel ban had gone into effect. Some of them were stateless. Some, some of them had sold everything they had in order to rejoin their partners or spouses or families in the US. And they landed and they were simply told at the border, I don't care where you go, go back to where you came from. I don't care if it's dangerous for you to be there. I don't care if you didn't originate from there, best of luck. And what she did, which is so inspiring, as you say, is just mobilize this army of like tax attorneys and real estate attorneys and family <laughs> law practitioners who just showed up at the airport on a memorable weekend 
and put their skin in the game. And a lot of them just sat there at, you know, the, the, the baggage carousels at airports, filing pro se petitions, doing the work of the law. And to me, it's not just that Becca was a visionary, that she saw a need and she jumped in. And by the way, a lot of told her of people told her to back down, but also that I think it goes to this seminal point in the book, which is that lawyers really can be heroes. And we always tell jokes about, you know, the best lawyers are at the bottom of the ocean. But in a constitutional <laughs> democracy, sometimes the best lawyers are the people who just show up and fight. And so for me, I love the vision of all these kind of dorky lawyers with their yellow pads showing up and being superheroes. And let's compare and uh, contrast Sally Yates and Becca Heller. Would you say they had different approaches to the law? <laughs> Wildly different. Um, Becca, I note in my introduction of her, is sort of notoriously been known to swear. She's pretty cynical about the institution of the law. She says at some point in her chapter, look, the law has been an instrument of oppression for uh, women and vulnerable people for almost all of history. I'm just using the master's tools to take apart the master's house. I think she's probably the very antithesis of the institutionalist that Sally Yates is. Sally Yates talks about the the law like a Frank Capra character, right? I mean, it's such a love affair and it's so clear that Sally Yates just genuinely believes in justice and the law. And I like the tension between the two of them. I like the idea that I don't know what these people would agree on, but I love the fact that they both kind of took up the skills that they had to push back on the travel ban. And another one of the most horrible moments of the Trump era was that night that neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville chanting, the Jews will not replace us. You, you tell the story of how they were sued by Roberta Kaplan under the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871. Who's Roberta Kaplan and where did she get this wild idea? Roberta Kaplan might be uh, known to folks who are um, very, very tuned into Supreme Court oral advocacy because Robbie Kaplan fought and won the Edie Windsor case at the U.S. Supreme Court that was a dart right into the core of DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. And that decision in Edie Windsor's case really opened the door in Obergefell for the court to finally recognize marriage equality in every state. So Robbie could have just sat down and done nothing else. And we could call her uh, a hero of democracy. But Robbie's one of those kind of energizer bunny people who just can't stop looking around and saying, who can I sue today? Uh, so she also defends E. Jean Carroll in her lawsuit against Donald Trump. She represents Mary Trump uh, and a bunch of plaintiffs who were defrauded by some of the Trump businesses. And Robbie and uh, Karen Dunn from Paul Weiss essentially looked around after the Charlottesville um, violence of August 2017 and said to themselves, you know what, if the Jeff Sessions Justice Department was operating as it should, there would be a massive civil rights investigation into what was clearly an act of deliberate racial violence that was intending to cause and did cause uh, 
death and bodily harm. Because as we can recall, Donald Trump said there were very good people on both sides and the Sessions Depart Justice Department did nothing around the violence in Charlottesville. Robbie and Karen Dunn took it upon themselves, as you say, to dust off this KKK Act that had been used uh, during Reconstruction and used a little bit in the 1960s. That's essentially just a civil action against those who conspire to commit violence based on race. And so they, everybody said this is nuts and the First Amendment and it was just speech and they just persisted. And they won. And one of the reasons I love this story is they got a $26 million judgment last November from a whole bunch of the organizers, Chris Cantwell, uh, Jason uh, Kessler, you know, a whole bunch of people who had engineered that uh, violence in Charlottesville. I should note that I was living in Charlottesville in, at the time, so this was very personal to me, too. But I also love this story, both because it's about big, fancy white shoe lawyers from fancy law firms. You don't all have to be Becca Heller. You don't all have to be Vanita Gupta. And it's also a story about a case that took four years from filing until it went to trial before a jury. And nevertheless, they persisted. So Roberta Kaplan won her case. But it seems to me that a lot of the other stories you tell, it's not so clear that they won. What do you make of the win and loss columns here? Well, I think I largely told stories of women who won. And then the book in the middle spreads out a little just from lawsuits, because one of the things I came to understand in the Trump years is that you can win many, many lawsuits and still lose ground. Bridget Amiri's chapter is about winning a massive and consequential lawsuit against the Trump administration for a policy they had put into place in which migrant teens at the border who were otherwise perfectly entitled to an abortion uh, were being denied, not let out of the shelter to end a pregnancy and Bridget won. And you're quite right. That looks like a win until you get to Dobbs, right? Where the Supreme Court essentially says, now nobody in Texas can get an abortion. And so it's awfully hard to tot up some of these wins as enduring. But I do think that maybe, you know, I, I would say, the book, in some sense, turns to organizing. The last three chapters are about voting and voting rights and not just get out the vote, but bending the voting machinery toward justice, doing something about vote suppression, election denialism, gerrymandering. So I think to your larger point, it's absolutely true. You can win all this, the lawsuits and still lose ground. But I think that if you can use the instruments of democracy, including voting rights, including organizing, including things like Supreme Court structural reform, then you can, in fact, win the long game. It's not going to just be enough to win lawsuits. But I think if we can pick up things like electoral college reform, gerrymandering reform, thinking really, really hard about a malapportioned Senate or a Supreme Court uh, with no ethics rules. Each and every one of those things is fixable using the instruments of law as well. One of the other biggest legal events around women of the Trump years, of course, was the Me Too movement. And there is a personal story here about you and federal appeals court judge Alex Kozinski. I remember him as a favorite debater at ACLU meetings in Los Angeles. He was so witty. He was so engaging. He was so clever. 
And it turned out he treated women abusively, horribly, and indeed you were one of them, but you didn't complain about this at the time. Why do you think you didn't? To be clear, he did not treat me abusively and horribly. Uh, he did uh, things that were inappropriate when I was a law clerk. It was not uh, nearly to the level of the treatment that some of the women who later came forward uh, alleged against him. I mean, there were women to whom he showed pornography in chambers. There were women that he touched inappropriately. By the time women started coming forward in 2017, uh, there were a whole host, I think 14 women on the record who came forward using their names to say what had happened. But your baseline question is the right question, which is, it was an open secret on the Ninth Circuit about Judge Kaczynski that, uh, you know, porn was a big part of, of um, what he showed clerks and discussed with clerks, that there was a real tendency of young women law students to refuse to clerk for him. I encouraged young women law students not to clerk for him. So my question for purposes of your answer is why we kept secrets, why an open secret on a federal appeals court was suppressed for decades until a handful of young women were brave enough to come forward and say, this is not all right. And so that chapter is less about, you know, Me Too and Alex Kaczynski than it is about a culture particularly acute in the legal profession and in the judiciary of never doing anything about abuse, of having systems that do not work to investigate and punish abuse, but the larger question of how it is possible that I could have written in 2017 that this was an open secret and gotten dozens of emails from people saying, oh, girl, I knew all about that. We all knew that. And yet most of us did nothing. That's the problem I wanted to grapple with. And how did the Alex Kaczynski story end? Well, it ended after um, I think the second wave of people came forward to the Washington Post and said, I am putting my name on the record. This happened to me. Uh, there was to be a judicial investigation of his conduct and Judge Kaczynski stepped down. And as soon as he stepped down with a lifetime pension, by the way, the investigation ended. There was no further investigation. And so to this day, it's still an open question of what happened, how it happened, who knew. And that goes to a larger point, which is we have to have investigations. Me Too isn't enough. Hashtag Twitter Me Too isn't enough. A bunch of people coming forward making claims is not enough. But if we don't have real and meaningful investigations, not just of Alex Kaczynski, I would say the same thing of Brett Kavanaugh. If we don't have meaningful investigations that include the protections of due process and the right to be heard and everything that follows, then we don't have legal findings. What we have is just mobs. And I am opposed to mobs regardless of who the accused is, because that's just not how we find out what happened. And maybe I would just add parenthetically that the legal profession, which was at issue in the Ninth Circuit context is a place that does daily, daily the work of investigating and adjudicating and making final findings on the merits. So the idea that the judiciary cannot do for itself what it does for the rest of society is just particularly galling and insane. 
you wrote most of this book before the repeal of Roe. Now we are in what you call a truly frightening moment. Would you have preferred that your book come out six months ago? Or is this a book for the post-Roe world of women in the law? Well, here I have to say I'm grateful to Jill Filipovic, who did a review in the Washington Post this week that helped crystallize for me why I think this book still works post-Roe. It's not just ancient history. That was the intention to sort of lift up these amazing women. But she says, and I think it's true, that the book is also a roadmap and a blueprint, although I am calling it a pink print because it's quite <laughs> pink. And I think it's a book that is about not just what we talked about at the beginning, which is understanding that women have real, excellent, useful tools to uh press into service in moments of, of difficulty and not just what we talked about in the middle, which is this gets done not by winning lawsuits, but by organizing. That's why the book ends with Stacey Abrams and these armies of black and brown women who have done more uh, to change the way we vote than, than anyone. But more pointedly, that the law, which can be absolutely a source of power and immense, immense uh, equality and dignity for women can turn on a dime to be used against them. And we've seen story after story this summer of young women who are, you know, rape and incest victims who are being denied abortion care, of people who are being denied emergency contraception, people who are being denied. Now we're hearing Idaho saying that students can't get contraception, teachers can't talk about abortion. That's the law being weaponized not to lift up and, and equalize women, but to harm them. And quite literally, in some cases, and the reason I say we're in a frightening moment, is we see women in jail in Oklahoma for fetal endangerment, in jail in Alabama for fetal endangerment. And so I think the law is both the most powerful and useful instrument that we have to make ourselves equal and free, even now, when it feels like the wheels have come off. But also we have to be so careful and mindful of how readily the law can be bent and distorted to go after women and their rights and freedom. This doesn't stop at Dobbs. I think it goes now to contraception. I think it now goes to, you know, fetal personhood and all that that involves. And so I want the folks who read and think about these issues to open the aperture a little bit, not just that like no hero is coming to save us, the heroes are all around us, but more urgently that the law which we have just taken for granted is the reason that we have credit cards and that we don't get fired for pregnancies and all the stuff that happened in the 70s to RBG, that same law can very, very speedily be melted down and fashioned into instruments of harm. And that we have to think really, really carefully about that relationship of both owning, embracing the rule of law and being very afraid of having it used against us to our peril. Dahlia Lithwick, her new book is Lady Justice. Dahlia, thanks for this wonderful book. And thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. William Broughton is our audio editor. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. 
D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.